Hello, and welcome to Thrive, a podcast that gives you strategies and inspiration to help you live your best life. Learn from us, two cancer survivors, as we show you how we don't just survive, but thrive. Hi, I'm Dara Kurtz, creator of CrazyPerfectLife.com, a place to go to help you find meaning each day, and author of the book, Crush Cancer, the book I needed when I heard those terrifying words, you have cancer, available on Amazon. Hi, I'm Garth Callahan. I am a seven-ton cancer thriver. But more importantly, I am also the original napkin notes dad. I've been writing notes to my daughter, Emma, and sticking them into her lunch ever since kindergarten. We are so excited to introduce you to Dr. Karen Heenberger. Karen is an experienced life sciences executive who has dedicated her career to applying medical science to impacting people living with chronic diseases. She founded and launched LifeBulb in January of 2014, and it is a chronic disease-focused, patient-empowered platform. It talks about diseases such as diabetes, cancer, IBS, multiple sclerosis, and depression and anxiety. Welcome, Karin. We are so happy to have you today. Well, thank you so much, and I'm excited to be on this podcast. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so tell our listeners a little bit about your background story and how you got to be where you are today. <laughs> well, that sounds like a good opening. I am Swedish. I grew up in in Sweden and had a pretty um, healthy and happy childhood with a lot of activities. And then one day as a teenager, now 30 years ago, I was told that I have type 1 diabetes. And that was a terrible day that I still very much remember. In many ways, it truly changed my life. And I, I think I grew up a little too quickly. I realized that I wasn't invincible, which I think a lot of young people believe they, they are. And especially as a, as a young athlete, as I was, I was playing tennis on the Swedish national tennis team and, uh, and doing well in school. I, I hadn't really met that many hurdles before, but this one was one that I really couldn't win over. So it, um, it, it changed my my view on um, on the world and it uh, changed my path instead of being uh, more easygoing and and playing tennis as much as i could i decided uh, then and there that i really wanted to dedicate my life to finding a cure for type 1 diabetes i was uh, very selfish in the sense that i wanted to get rid of this horrible disease for myself but um, obviously also for for other people and so I was um, uh, determined to go to medical school to do research. It was something that I, I had always been interested in, actually. I was very interested in why some people got sick and why we could uh, be healthy and, uh, and also really the background to diseases and what causes them and, what, uh, and how, do you, how do you fix the, a problem. So I went very quickly through high school and moved directly to medical school. And uh, already in my second year of medical school, I, I started doing research. So for me, science was always a way to solve a problem that was in the clinic. I was always focused on the patient and how the patient felt or uh, the problems were for, for people living with the disease. And then I wanted to try to find a way to fix that through science. And, and I continued uh, to do so uh, through my PhD and also moving to the U.S. And, and continuing to work in science at Harvard, where I did more research in diabetes, uh, which was very <laughs> kind of tough as a person who's also living with the disease because um, you get so deep and so you see so many issues. And as a young person, that, that was quite hard. 
at the same time when I was diagnosed with diabetes and I decided I wanted to work in the space, I also made a second decision was that it wasn't going to impact me in any way when it comes to my uh, performance, the way I handled myself, the way I could accomplish things. So I decided no one should know about this because I didn't want to be treated differently. So throughout my schooling, my uh, even my research and uh, my time at uh, the Joslin Center, which is dedicated to diabetes in Boston, no one knew I had diabetes. I was, uh, you know, going through the clinic, and uh, there were people with diabetes, and then I was working with both clinicians and researchers, but they they really didn't know I had the disease. I was hiding it very well, and uh, I think that was obviously not a very good way of handling a, a chronic disease. But um, I continued that way and moved to New York and uh, moved really from academic science and worked more in the um, financial aspects of medicine in uh, both uh, investment funds as well as McKinsey consultant, learning more about how to analyze a problem, not just from a scientific perspective, but also from a business perspective. And very quickly learned that I, I really wanted to be more part of bringing products to market. So that meant that I needed to work in a company rather than in a fund or as a consultant where it was uh, somewhat far away from, from the patient. But during these years of very, very high stress and, and, and very uh, performance-oriented uh, work, of course, I was living with a chronic disease that I was hiding from everyone, and that took a toll on my body didn't allow anyone to help me. I didn't allow to make accommodations. And then finally, after 20 years with the disease, I found myself in kidney failure with severe eye damage and um, just in terrible physical shape. I was uh, very much a walking stroke risk and uh, was close to going blind and uh, going on dialysis. And I was not yet 35 years old. So it, it was a, a terrible kind of situation for someone who had believed that I could do anything. And I was working very hard to compensate for my disease that I felt was a failure. I finally had to tell people that I had the disease, but not just that I had type 1 diabetes, but I had failed in my treatment. I was now one of those who developed complications. And it shows to me that, you know, failing in your treatment of, of a disease, as I saw it, is not just about education and um, uh, access and uh, resources. It's really about behavior and it's about allowing someone else to help you. So I took away two things from this experience. And after I had kind of got back to health, uh, which took a few years, I needed a kidney transplant and I also had a pancreas transplant. I got um, extensive eye treatment on both eyes to prevent blindness. Uh, I eventually needed a pacemaker as well to uh, prevent my heart from stopping. Uh, after all that, I was still smiling and, and still happy to, to, or even more happy to be alive. And um, now I realized that all the experiences that I had accumulated through my, my work also needed to be added to those as a, as a, with my personal experience. And that's when I founded Lifebulb, which so, was five years ago. So, Karin, it must have been for someone who didn't want to tell anyone that they had a chronic disease for over 20 years. And then to be in that space where you, I think, were pretty much forced to tell people just because of what you were going through. What did that feel like for you? And in some ways, was that sort of like a weight lifted off of your shoulder, if you will? 
You're, you're absolutely right. It was almost a relief. Yeah. Uh, you know, finally, I uh, I think uh, when you have type 1 diabetes and it's similar to other autoimmune diseases, and, you know, they're not visible. You can't see them, but they are constantly there. And everything you do impacts the progression of the disease, and the disease affects absolutely everything you do. You cannot eat a meal without thinking about your diabetes. You cannot, you know, be in a relationship. You cannot um, do exercise. There's absolutely nothing you can do. But at the same time, you can hide it the way I did until a certain point. And it was a relief because if you are hiding one of the most important things about yourself, uh, that means that you're never getting really close to people. I mean, it sounds like it's almost like you are sort of ashamed of the fact that you had it. I yeah. was absolutely ashamed. I was yeah. absolutely ashamed. I felt like a failure. Right. And I felt this disease um, made me um, a lesser person because I had a failing pancreas. And, you know, for some strange reason, I blame myself for it. It was odd. You know, I did so well when it comes to understanding the disease from a scientific medical perspective, but I did absolutely nothing to understand it from a psychological or emotional perspective. I didn't allow that. And so I was in some way still um, in the um, uh, kind of development phase of a teenager when it comes to talking about myself, even though I was now in my 30s. When I was uh, in kidney failure and I was in the hospital uh, with uh, you know uncontrollable blood pressure and anemia down to six with multiple blood transfusions because my kidneys were failing, you know, I, I, I was almost relieved because now people saw I was really sick and I didn't have to explain this disease that would impact me. But at the same time, I would say, oh, no, it doesn't impact me because I can do everything you can do. So it was no longer confusing. Now I was a patient. I was really a patient. I was not just someone who was living with a disease. I was someone who needed help. And that was a relief. Um, I, I think that we hear from a lot of our guests that especially you never know what someone's going through. You know, we're all out living our lives and we think we know people, but a lot of people are going through a lot of stuff, if you will, and some people do hide it more than others. And another thing that I just wanna say is that it takes a lot of energy to kind of not want people to find out. It takes a lot of energy to sort of keep all that inside of you. I know when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer, it's been almost six years, I didn't want to really tell a lot of people because I did feel kind of like I had failed. And I, I think that's kind of what you're saying. Um, yeah. So a, a lot of people, I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think I've been the exact opposite of that. But my, you have, Garth. Yeah. But my experience is, especially when I, when I talk to other men who have been diagnosed with cancer, that they are incredibly private. They feel like they're less of a person because they've been diagnosed with something that is a, a challenging health issue. And in most cases, it's not because of anything that they did. I think that people really have to get, they have to understand that it is battling a chronic illness is a huge challenge and you can't do it by yourself. Right. You know, I was actually taking some notes as you were introducing yourself. And uh, one interesting side note, Dara, apparently we need to seek out more tennis players because- I know, the, like we're having 
a lot of tennis players lately. <laughs> this is the second. In fact, it's it's the second European tennis yeah. player in the past couple of weeks. Um, so I'm not sure. The universe is saying you and I need to pick up rackets. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I know. You, you you said something that really struck me in regards to privacy. You commented that you didn't want anybody to know. That's so isolating for patients. And it puts so much added stress and friction onto the relationship. Imagine, at least for me, when I was in the, the urologist office for the first time, that was 50 or 60 people. You know, it's a really big waiting room. And there are people there for all sorts of reasons. It was scary for me, but then... I started to recognize, hey, I'm I'm here because I'm really sick, or we think we're I'm sick, and and there's nothing I can do about it. And it was a it was a, a mental hurdle that I quickly overcame. But I, sadly, I don't think that the average person mindset that they just maybe they're just too scared. I'm not sure what the the reason is to be to try to purposely isolate yourself. For me, it was definitely survival in a sense because. I, I was in an environment of medicine. I was in an environment of research. So I saw patients with diabetes who were really sick. And I didn't want to identify with them. I didn't want to think that I could be one of them. You know, it was never really something that I, I didn't want to be part of a community of people who are uh, sick. So, you know, if I didn't identify as a person with diabetes, then I didn't have to, you know, be one of them. And then therefore I could kind of safeguard myself from those consequences of diabetes then that, that I actually later on developed, which, which I, you know, could maybe have prevented, but I don't know. I mean, there are so many, um, you know, theories on that, but I think it was clearly because I didn't want to be um, like those people sitting in the waiting room. You know, I, I, and I have to say that that's something that even though now I'm obviously out there with the, my disease, I mean, it's my, my work, it's uh, it's what I believe is very good for people. I believe that connecting with others is it's actually one of the foundational principles of life bulb. Um, you know, number one for us is patients need patients. We don't just need doctors. We don't not just need drug companies or holistic approaches or, you know, we really need others who have gone down the path that we're about to enter. You know, that, that's really what the connectivity app that we are building is, is all about. And it, it's, in some ways, it's uh, not always necessary to connect with a person directly who has diabetes. It could be that I would connect with someone who uh, had gone through breast cancer or, or with MS or, you know, because there are similarities with chronic disease. It's, it's a matter of a personal connection. You know, I, I also, of course, want to learn about small things that could be important you know, how do you tell your employer that you have a certain disease? How do you how do you celebrate Christmas with your family the first time when you are told that you cannot have sugar? You know, I still remember a few Christmases in, uh, you know, Christmas is a very big deal in Sweden. It's the biggest holiday of the year. It's very, very celebrated, a lot of food and, you know, it's very nice. And I remember my mother saying to me, uh, you've ruined Christmas. Oh. And, and I said, well, well, it's Christmas because now we all have to eat this kind of food. 
I can't, we can't have a nice food anymore. And I know she didn't mean it. Well, I don't know if she didn't mean it. Maybe she did mean it. She probably did mean it because she likes to prepare the food and she likes to eat the food. She was, she was but, probably mourning. She was probably sad herself and she was probably mourning that loss as well. And yeah. In, yeah, she was. Yeah, she was. And she's obviously one of the people who helped me the most when I was sick. Yeah. So you know, I have a lot of gratitude to with my mother. But it reflects also the problem of the caregiver, you know, because when when someone in your family gets sick, it's equally tough for those who are not sick. Absolutely. And that was something that I think also I may not have handled. I'm very critical of myself, but I I didn't handle that very well because I told my family, my closest family, you can't tell anyone either. So they never had any support. They were not allowed to go to any organization or talk to someone else who had a um, child with diabetes. We were completely isolated. Wow. Um, and, uh, so it's tough. But anyway, I think that out of all this and because I... I could learn, and then um, I, I used some of these negative experiences to um, apply, you know, the learnings to to something that then could be positive. You know, Life Bulb was really born out of that. Uh, the first one being patients need patience, and the second one is that uh, patients can be innovators. You know, as a person with diabetes who was working always in the space of innovation as a medical doctor and a, a business person, I, I never used my experience with the disease when assessing new technology or even coming up with new ideas because I didn't want to bias myself. I didn't want to see my N of one being important. And now I realize that the insights and the solutions coming directly from those who are experiencing disease, you know, are, are incredibly important. And that's the basis for our patient ambassadors and our patient entrepreneurs. You know, and these individuals, they, they help so much when it comes to be getting better products into the marketplace and helping others. I, so, I think it's so interesting that you went from not wanting to tell anyone about your disease to building this beautiful platform where people openly acknowledge that they have this disease and it's almost kind of what brings people together. And I just think it's such a beautiful lesson on going through something really hard and experiencing it and then using that to help others. And I know Garth and I love that so much. And that's why we wanted to host you today because LifeBulb is such a an amazing platform to connect people who are going through challenges to make them feel like they're not alone yeah that's exactly what uh, the goal is you know we I, I i don't think i've ever felt as alone as when i was diagnosed with diabetes or when i was told that i, I needed a kidney transplant you know or, or when i was sitting in uh, in in the hospital and uh, and they said well you really um will lose your vision if you don't go through these laser treatments and i i felt there's no one in the world who has this as bad as i have and no one is going to go through this. <laughs> um, but obviously, there are so many uh, people, unfortunately, who are going through similar experiences. And, and, and when you speak to them and when you share your own experience, you, you, you feel a little better. Because yeah. I think helping others and, and, and guiding them through the worst times um, really makes uh, you feel like you are doing something good. And, you know, it's not only about the bad times, it's also about the good times. It's about actually enjoying yourself. You know, for me, I try to enjoy every single moment. I mean, if I'm upset at something, it has to be really serious. If it's a small problem, it doesn't bother me. If it's, it, it really shouldn't, because life is much too short. And as I know, I mean, it could end very quickly. 
So we need to make the most out of it. We need, and that's also part of life bulb. You know, we try to inspire through innovation. We're always thinking ahead. We're thinking about how we can do better and, and through hope. You know, there's, there's, I think if we can give back the power to the patient, instead of having a patient be feeling alone, feeling uh, really, really just receiving information and being the one that is vulnerable, then, then life is pretty miserable. But if we can take back control, that meaning that our insights and our solutions that we come up with as people who are living with the disease, and that can influence how we live in the future, I think we all will do better. And those who are really sick, who really cannot contribute at this point in time, they will eventually get there. And I think by reading about the stories about those who are right now influencing, advocating, innovating, I think you feel like, oh, they are part of what we are doing. They're part of the community. And, and that's even more important than seeing some of these stories that are also incredible of individuals who have a disease who also happen to be movie stars or, you know, pop stars or athletes. They would have been those people anyway. But, you know, what is what is amazing about the ambassadors and the entrepreneurs is that they've created a career out of their own misery. I mean, it really, really is. They go from, uh, you know, uh, healthcare and and, you know, create wealth even. And I think that the power back to the patient through these different kinds of programs is so valuable. I love that the umbrella of Lifebulb has, um, as we said before, diabetes and cancer and IBS and multiple sclerosis and now depression and anxiety. So what can you say that you've learned from looking at all of these different chronic illnesses what are some ways, because we have a lot of listeners, and I'm sure that many, many of our listeners, some have maybe MS, some might have IBS, some have cancer, maybe some are just not dealing with any type of health issue, but of course, everyone knows someone who's dealing with something. What have you seen? What tips can you give our listeners if they personally are going through a chronic illness? Tips in general, uh, yep. you know, first of all, I think that we, we, we were very clear in the beginning that we didn't want to just be about diabetes. We felt that if you are too focused on just one disease, um, it's easy to become elitist about that disease and think that, you know, no other disease is as terrible as your own disease. And that makes you feel even more miserable. You know, it, it's actually in even on a scientific basis, it's very interesting to look at other diseases uh, and learn from how those are being treated. And I also think that some of the symptoms are, are very similar. I mean, fatigue, chronic fatigue, uh, you know, is something that everyone with, a, with some sort of chronic disease is suffering from. It's hard to treat. In MS, the fatigue is one of the most difficult symptoms. It's the same thing in type 1 diabetes. Depression is very prevalent in all of these chronic diseases. Uh, yeah. That's why we added anxiety and depression to our to our list and why we work very actively there with the comorbidities. You know, we are we are looking to add more diseases. I'm personally very interested in chronic kidney disease and also of course in transplants. I think individuals who are going through transplants have a psychological issue as well because they're living with someone else's organ. And, uh, you know, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that gratitude, but also that guilt? Mm -hmm. You know, in my case, I have my father's kidney. And, uh, you know, I have a, a, a great obligation now to live very much better uh, because he gave me an organ. But, you know, at the same time, he can't keep holding that, you know, on me uh, uh, every time I see him. <laughs> 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 
I can I can imagine the the discussion at the dinner table. Should you really yeah. be eating that? Because you know it's my kidney. Yeah, in our case, it's the opposite. He said you really need to eat more because my kidney is it needs more nutrition. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Think about your mass and think about my mass. My kidney is used to a much better diet. Uh, anyway, uh, no, you know, our our conversations in 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 my home or my parents with my parents are quite complicated, as you can imagine. And now, uh, you know, it was a recent addition. Uh, Eighteen months ago, I had a little girl, a little baby, uh, which is absolutely congratulations. It's a miracle, you know, yeah. in the sense. Now we we have uh, another individual, and I can say that probably. In addition to Life Ball, which I consider my first baby, uh, Leave is uh, is my second baby, even though she's the real baby. You know, both of those things, both Life Ball, that are not things, but both of those very important events in my life, have probably transformed my behavior more than anything. Because with a business of my own, which is now much bigger than me, much, much bigger, it's a, we have a team, and we, as you said, we have many diseases, six diseases, many partners. Uh, 150 ambassadors and entrepreneurs uh, who we are actively talking to. You know, it's a it's a business that you can't just live for on a daily basis. It's something they have to think about long term because there are other people involved, and and I have an obligation to deliver toward our network, our investors, our our community, which is the most important. And even more, when you have a little child, you can't do things that are just selfish in the sense that I can't just take risk in the way that I did before. I have to think about her. It, it actually struck me only three weeks ago, I, I, I felt very sick. And it's, I'm on these immunosuppressants, so it, sometimes I get sick uh, to my stomach um, because they are essentially like chemo, uh, low-dose chemo, but constant. So if I eat something that is not good, I, I can very easily get sick. And I felt, how, what am I going to do if I'm, um, you know, very, very nauseous and I am uh, have low blood pressure and I have an 18-month-old baby? How, how am I going to manage her? I better not get sick. So it was a, an additional motivator uh, to me to really take care of myself because otherwise uh, she's not going to be able to handle life without me. And that's a great responsibility that obviously is something that every parent knows. But as someone who's been living with a disease for so long, 30 years, um, I have been, obviously, I'm not saying that it's good, but I, I, I've been focused on myself, on my own survival. And that uh, having another person in your life um, changes that somewhat, probably for the better. So what are some ways that you take care of yourself? What are your favorite ways to take care of yourself every day? Well, I make sure that I um, I sleep. I make sure that I eat uh, regularly. That's something that is uh, really important to me. I, I try not to skip meals. And um, I try, when I book my day, I try not to build in any too much social uh, engagement that doesn't yield much to me, but it's actually just giving away. I, I, I try to put a balance in my life because my, my work is so important and my family is so important that in, if there are events that are draining to me, I, I try to dismiss them. And in the past, I would always say yes, because I, I thought you cannot say no to anyone. But now I, I try to say no if I realize that it's, it's just not going to make me feel good. So I try to prevent it. I still, I think, take on too much. I travel too much. Um, but that's part of my personality. And 
I, I do think that keeping busy is a way for me actually to handle my life. Because if mm-hmm. I'm not busy, I start thinking too much. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yet there where I can do yoga and meditate. I'm, I probably have too much in my head that is still spinning uh, that I want to accomplish before uh, my time is out. And I just, I just haven't got to the point yet where I can sit down and just not do anything. Uh, and that's something that I, I would like to achieve. And I see those who do, and they, they seem more at peace. But right now I'm running incredibly hard so that I think my the way I do to take care of myself is I can continue to run and continue to be happy. Uh, those are my priorities. That's amazing. So this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Crush Cancer online course, a 10-module online program that you can watch from your home. It's little videos with worksheets that go along with each module. It is regularly $197, but with your coupon code THRIVE, you will receive 50% off, and that means you will get the whole course for $99. The 10 modules talk about things such as you didn't ask for cancer, but now we have to deal with it, to thinking about yourself as a survivor, establishing a mantra, physical and emotional changes, fear versus faith, creating a daily self-care practice, and so many more things. You can check it out by going to crazyperfectlife.com and clicking on the Crush Cancer online course. So, Karin, we are birds of a feather. Dara is the outlier (laughs) here because Dara is absolutely the meditator and the yoga meister of the two of us. And I cannot quiet my mind. I find that I can meditate for, if I concentrate, I can meditate for a good 15 or 16 seconds. And then I'm off onto something else. And, and, and I understand. I understand exactly where you're coming from. I, I'm not sure if it's our DNA or our environment or our upbringing, but gosh, it is really difficult to get into that type of space. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. I think, you know, everyone has to listen to their bodies and do what works for them in a non-judgmental way. So, and I think you're open to, you still explore it, Garth, and Karin, maybe, you never know, maybe down the road, it'll, you'll find it when you are ready for it. So, yeah. um, you know, I think just not judging ourselves, we're all so hard on ourselves and when you go through something like diabetes or cancer or chronic illness, you realize that, like you said before, we're not perfect and we just, we need to get, show ourselves some grace and do the best we can every single day with the day that we have in front of us. And that's really all anyone can do. Yeah. I I wanted to share, Karin, one of the things that I do every podcast episode is I share one of the many napkins that I've written to my daughter. So I've I've been writing napkins, notes on napkins, and sticking them in my daughter's lunch ever since she was in kindergarten. She's almost 20. We're, we're, We're approaching her 20th birthday. I still write her notes. She's at college, so I don't necessarily get to stick them in her lunch. And I think that this one, of all of the notes that I could have picked, I think this is the one that's most applicable to our discussion today and especially your mission. And it's a quote from one of my favorite people, Simon Sinek. And to be honest, I don't think that Emma really understood 
what I was writing to her because I, this is something I wrote many years ago. Success always takes help. Mm. Interesting. That's a deep quote. That's very good. So do you keep all the quotes? Uh, or the <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, You know, I, I love answering this question because uh, my first... personality, does he keep all the quotes? <laughs> Sorry, tell her how you do that. So, <laughs> so I take a picture of every napkin. Now, I didn't start doing that until I was diagnosed with cancer, and we started to recognize that my, you know, my potential legacy was these notes that I was writing to her. So, ever since maybe I think sixth grade, I started taking pictures of the of of each napkin. Um, I have a box of 826 napkins, which I wrote out when Emma was in eighth grade, um, one for every school lunch day until graduation, just in case I died. And the napkins that I've written and we've been able to save, because let's face it, most of the napkins are biohazards, right? They have coffee and salad dressing and peanut butter and, and God knows what that's you know, these, these napkins are disposable. They're meant to be used and thrown away. Um, some of them we've saved. Uh, a couple have so much coffee on them that I had to lay that lay it out and dry it and put it into a baggie because I didn't want it to tarnish the other napkins. But you also have them on your computer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, have, I have every single napkin since sixth grade you know, stored as a picture and in an Excel spreadsheet <laughs> because I'm such a geek. And and one of the things I love about prepping for a podcast episode of so much what the perfect napkin to share might be. And it just brings back so many memories because I, you know, I can picture myself reading this quote from Simon and writing it on the napkin and because I've stored it, I, I can probably even remember yeah. about what was going on because it says, you know, the date and the time and whatnot. I love that, Garth. I, I want to share this really quick story because I have so much first to success and, uh, and you know, failure, depending on your point of view. So back when Emma was in 11th grade, I had a 2.8% success rate. And that, this is what I measured. She has about 180 school days, and during the entire school year, five napkins were saved by her. So three, so much napkin got tacked up on the cork board in the kitchen. There was one randomly floating around the house. I can't remember where it ended up. And then one she saved and put it on her vanity in her bedroom. So out of all of the napkins that I wrote that year, only five were deemed worthy to be saved. That's why you do it, right? So you don't do it for the 175, you do it for the five. And that's what success to me is. Yeah, that is such a beautiful way to just encourage our listeners to think about what success looks like in their lives. And Maybe we could all take a step backwards and rethink the way we judge success for ourselves. And we're all so hard on ourselves. I, I think everyone, it's just human nature to have expectations and to be hard on ourselves. So that's such a great story. 
Karin, on the Thrive Podcast, we love asking our guests to share with us one of their favorite thriving tips, a little extra nugget of goodness that you have figured out that works for you in your life. So we'd love for you to share a thriving tip with our listeners. <laughs> well, I think that has very much changed for me uh, in the past 18 months. <laughs> yeah, we get that. Is after a long day of uh, you know calls, meetings, running around Midtown New York, and uh, you know struggling as a startup, but uh, you know still loving it, of course. Uh, for me, thriving is all about coming back home and going for a walk or spending time with my with my daughter. That is thriving. I come alive. Uh, doesn't matter how tired I am, how sick I am, or whatever is going on. I do, and I, maybe that's my meditation actually, because it is the only time. It's the only time. Even right now, I think about many other things when I'm speaking to you. <laughs> But with her, I am 100% focused on her, 100%. And it, it, there's just nothing else. I, I take in her expression, her you know, little words that are coming out, and I just really, really enjoy it. But more, most importantly, I mean, I haven't even thought about it before. It's that I am, am in the now. And I, I've even written essays and blogs about this because I've never understood how to be in the now. I've always looked ahead, and I think that that has been my savior. That has been what saved me uh, because it was so tough, you know, with these different things that went on. If I had thought too much about the future, I really, it was tough what I was going through. With her, I am so present. I am, I'm not just uh, deliberating, I'm not just planning, I'm, I'm, I'm just there. And that helps me. Uh, so I guess that's my my way of thriving is to spend time with my with my family. I, I wish I could say it's also spending time with my husband. That's also great. Um, it's wonderful to spend time with him. But it, uh, I think that uh, if I had to pick one to say what, what makes me really happy, it's spending time with her. Oh, that's amazing, Karen. Thank you for sharing that. What a huge, beautiful blessing in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. So where can our listeners find you? And of course, we'll have all the links in the show notes. So um, I really encourage you to take a look at lifebulb.com. Um, we are also on Instagram. I'm also on Instagram and where you can see my baby <laughs> and what I uh, all my travels and, uh, and what I do on, uh, uh, you know, both socially and, uh, and of course with work because they're so, so intertwined and that's Karin, um, Karin at Lifebulb or Karin Lifebulb. Um, uh, it's actually Instagram as well as Twitter, um, at Karin Lifebulb and Karin is K-A-R-I-N and, but Lifebulb is also on all social media and it's always L-Y-F-E-B-U-L-B is our logo, is our name. And it's all about, um, again, inspiration. The light bulb stands for innovation, but our light bulb has life in it. Uh, and that's that's where our name comes from. We are uh, focused on, on life. We're focused on thriving. Uh, when you say, uh, you know, it's, it, it very much um, uh, is similar to what you're talking about. We do not believe that uh, you should just survive with chronic disease. We want to thrive. We want to live well with chronic disease. That's what Life Bulb is about. And, and we believe that one can do that through connectivity. Um, if I have any advice for those who are living with any chronic disease or those who are supporting someone with chronic disease, it's to connect. You know, do, don't do what I did. 
really try to connect, even if it's with one other person, I think it really helps. So connectivity, connecting with another person who is similar to you, that's, that's really helpful. And then I think the second part is we do believe that there will be better products out there. And I think that we as patients who are living with these diseases, we can help to bring those products to market. Because for us, it's not just important financially or scientifically to be successful. It is really important because we need products. So if we can be innovators, if we can be those who advise companies, I think, and even create companies that will develop new products, I think we will see a better future for all of us. That's amazing. Karin, thank you so much for being here today. Please check Lifebulb out and Karin and let anyone that you know who maybe is going through a chronic disease about Lifebulb, I think they'll be able to get a lot of hope and inspiration at that website. Again, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Thrive is created with the hope that we help you develop motivation and inspiration to make your life remarkable. You can find out more about me at napkinnotesdad.com. I invite you to get my free audio download, Reclaim Your Life, at crazyperfectlife.com with tips and tools to help you feel your best. It would mean so much to us if you shared this with your friends and family and left us a review on iTunes. Remember, you deserve to thrive. Thrive Podcast is copyrighted by Dara and Garth.